0: Thank you arno it is so good to be with you again this morning um thanks luke i think so much has been said and framed um and it's we we frame because we care about being gentle towards people and going hey the, um, how we say these things and how we have this conversation really matters um we as luke was speaking i was reminded like we had some same-sex attracted guys in our community back in in common ground and. Um, one of them is amazing. He is celibate at the moment, and he, he is more passionate about his sexual purity than a lot of our single heterosexual guys. And he finds himself calling them to the standards of Christ more than we're having to call him to the standards of Christ. I just thought that's a great testimony of how this lives out and, and works out in a real community that love each other and care for each other. And that kind of dismantles some biases we might have as, as he lives out his faith. Now, this talk, Transgenderism, is a really nice, easy, like I said, non-confrontational talk, so my name for the recording is Arno, and it's so good to be with you this morning. Um, <laughs> no one can ever confuse us, I mean, I've been, I've been growing my beard for 22 years, and this is how far I've never shaved a day in my life, and <laughs> well, Arno sh- shaved this morning, Um <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, <laughs> remember where I'm eating. Okay, I'm sorry, Honor. Um, but this really is a a difficult one to wade into. And honestly, back in Cape Town, I got to do the talk that Carl did last night, and and in my community, my parents are there, and I spoke to my parents about pornography and masturbation and the first time in my teens when I was exposed to pornography you think that it's as bad as it can get and I was far more scared to do this talk in Cape Town than I was to speak about those things in front of my parents because this is a a talk that that is alive in our culture at the moment. I don't know if you saw the Bud Light stuff happening recently in America and how it just polarized the country as that a transgender woman represented beer and people just everyone had an opinion on it. And you saw the culture wars that Luke was talking about play out. This thing is real, and and you can say things that are are. Innocent. You're, you're trying to wade into the conversation. You say something and it can make people incredibly offended and very angry and things can explode up, explode very quickly. And it's probably one of the, the forefront spaces on in the social media space where you see cancel culture hitting, but on both sides of the, the conversation. And um, It is a topic that's moving incredibly fast. It is so hard to keep up with this conversation around transgenderism, and it is political. I mean, literally, if you go on YouTube and you just look at American politics at the moment and and those hearings that they have, this is a topic that comes up in almost every single one of them, whether they're talking defense, whether they're talking pharmaceuticals, whether they're talking medicine. It's just coming up everywhere. It's starting to touch everything. Schools, you speak to teachers and, and leaders in schools and principals, and they're going, this thing has hit us so fast, so hard. We're trying to make sense of it. Like parents, amounts of parents I speak to are going, man, I, my, my child was like was 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 um not dealing with anything and then out of nowhere they're dealing with this idea of transgenderism and trying to make sense of it. And it's just happening so fast and hitting us so fast. And um, as pastors, again, we're not professionals, we're pastors. And we're wading into this conversation with a deep desire to serve and love our community and Christ followers. And how do we have this conversation? And one of the things I want to say right on the front end is we must have this conversation again. I said that last night, but this one specifically around transgenderism is one that we must have. And actually our cultural moment, as you'll see as I unpack this, is trying to shut down the conversation. And There are reasons that the conversation is being shut down, but people full of grace and truth. Can actually, We are the most equipped people to wade into this conversation and open it up in a way that brings life and not destruction. And we've got to have confidence as um, Christians that we have permission in Christ to have these conversations. And in the complexity of these conversations, what we want to do is we want to point to Jesus, our true north. Again, I stand here this morning hiding behind the person of Jesus going, these are my opinions or ideas, hopefully... (laughs) Mostly not. But my desire, my hope is to go, this is what I think Jesus has to say on these things. And what you do with what Jesus has to say is between you and him. It's not between you and me. You need to stand before Jesus and go, I'm following your ways. I'm living life in accordance with you. And I can't represent the entire conversation. It is a huge conversation. We're going to be here for 80 minutes. I'm going to give you a break. Okay, it is a massive conversation. It's going to feel different to Luke's talk because there's just so much information that I have to give you just to understand the conversation long before we can even get to how do we we live this out. So that has to be worked out in other ways. And this is the start of a conversation, not the end of a conversation. And like Luke said, I also want to be generous in my language. And it's complex because this very conversation, people will split out language to mean different things. And if you use a certain word or phrase, they find that word or phrase offensive because it cuts across their very ideas. So I want to be generous and I want to use as much language as I can that represents the fullness of the conversation. While at the same time, honoring the fact that I do believe that there is a true north in Jesus. And I want to hold to certain convictions and beliefs. And I said this last night, but I want to say it again because it is so at the heart of this conversation, is that we are dealing with people and ideas. And that is so important because this conversation, the ideas behind transgenderism are some of the strongest in the moment. And I would say that the ideas of transgenderism are the ones leading and pushing forward the sexual revolution at the moment it's these ideas so we have to engage with these ideas and we have to really criticize or critically look at them and and interrogate them go what is behind these ideas but at the same time we've got to realize that we're dealing with people who built identities on these ideas and we really want to serve and love people so when I'm talking about ideas we're gonna be honest about the ideas and when we're talking about people we're gonna be compassionate and loving going how do we serve and care for people and ideas really do matter because what we believe to be true about the world what we believe Jesus to say is true about the world will inform everything including the way that we what we believe a person is what we believe the body is what we believe gender is what we believe sexuality is and those ideas will inform how we live out our lives and how we treat other people's bodies how we treat our own bodies and so ideas really do matter on these things And again, like I said last night, I want to call us as we wade into this conversation to have great security in the reality that we are beloved sons and daughters of God in Christ. And that we can have these conversations knowing that he is secure, that he is unchanging, that he is the creator of the universe, that his ways are true and no ideas that come against his ideas will stand because he represents ultimate truth. But at the same time, because of that security, we should be able to hear what we need to hear. And we should be secure. And we should not be having this conversation from a place of fear or holding on to tradition views and beliefs. Rather, what is it that Jesus has to say? Who does Jesus say I am? Who does Jesus say other people are? And where is he leading me and us? Now, I said this conversation is complicated. And I've got a slide that I'm going to throw up. And I don't want you to panic. Okay. Can you throw up that slide of, of this conversation? Um, I hope you can find it because the, it's the table. That one, yes, that one. Okay. Do not panic. It looks way more complicated than it is. So if you look at this slide, on the left you've got a puzzle box, on the right you've got a puzzle box. We spoke about that last night, that puzzle boxes are world views. It's how we make sense of the world. And then in the middle there, what you have are these three things that we're going to speak about this morning. Intersex, gender dysphoria, and rapid onset gender dysphoria. You see those three blocks. And in the middle, um, at the top there, I said puzzle pieces. And what I want us to understand is that this conversation, as I've said, is about people who have received these puzzle pieces of intersex gender dysphoria or rapid onset gender dysphoria. They're they're holding these pieces and there are people in the middle trying to make sense of this. And what we're going to unpack this morning is that as these people in the middle try to make sense of these realities in their lives, there are two predominant worldviews speaking to them at the moment. There is secular humanism and a a subset of that is is, um, queer theory. And, and, and that's a worldview and a belief about the body and how the world works and gender and what gender is. And actually, we're going to get into that. and We're going to look at that a bit in this talk. On the right is the Christian worldview and puzzle box. And actually, that's going to be spoken about on Sunday. So we're not going to get there this morning but that worldview. so we're going to look at the people in the middle we're going to look at what intersex is what gender dysphoria is and what rapid onset gender dysphoria is and then we're going to look at the ideas now the arrows are important because you've got these people in the middle and those pink arrows are these ideas pushing in on these people helping them make sense of the puzzle pieces they hold the green arrows are where the people decide to go and I wanted to represent that, that people who have intersex or gender dysphoria or rapid onset gender dysphoria are just people trying to make sense of the world and how it works and the things that they're dealing with. And then you've got these ideas. And it's really important also that you see that, that these ideas are represented in our culture. And in, in the water we swim. And for every single one of us, we predominantly swim in that left-hand box of culture, that, that um, secular humanism. But we also swim in a Christian culture. And actually, you'd hope our, we, we are, we live in a world that's not our ultimate home. And so we swim in it, but we are Christ followers in this world. And that's the beauty of the church is that we live in a culture that is informing and shaping us and preparing us not for this life, but the life to come. But you see there that the, the people represent this. So you've got activists, doctors, academics, and biologists. And then on the left, you've got um, activists, doctors, um, academics, and biologists. And actually, these people are the guys who hey, this is how the world works, this is what I'm called to do, and this is how I'm going to live this out. And what's controversial is you'll actually have pastors on both sides operating with the different puzzle boxes, which is also why this conversation gets so so confusing, is that there are pastors, I would argue, who have more of a secular humanist worldview that, um, than they do a Christian worldview. And then you've obviously got pastors who have a Christian worldview, believe the word to be true and Jesus to be true north, and and they're pushing us into this. And, and it's, it's important to know that biologists are found on both sides, that academics are found on both sides, doctors are found on both sides, activists are found on both sides of this conversation. And so that's a picture that we're going to look at regularly this morning to try and understand this conversation. And hopefully by the end of, of my talk, you'll see that, 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 that there'll be clarity. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at intersex, that top block. Now, there should be a slide with that one. Colored it in. Okay. I should have prepped you for how complicated this is going to be to do the slides. So we're going to ask the question, what is transgenderism? And as we ask that question, what is transgenderism? We're going to look at those three blocks. And the first one is intersex. And I, I want to start here with intersex predominantly to actually remove them from the conversation. And I'll show you why it's so important that we remove people who are intersex from the conversation. Now, what are intersex people? Well, I want to let an The Intersex Society of America tell us what intersex people are. This is the quote from the Intersex Society of America. It says, intersex is a general term used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that does not seem to fit the typical definition of male or female. For example, a person might be born appearing to be male on the outside but having mostly male typical anatomy on the inside. Or a person may be born with genitals that seem to be in between the usual male and female types. Or a person may be born with a mosaic genetics so that some of her cells are XX chromosomes and some of them are XY. Though we speak of intersex as an inborn condition... Intersex anatomy doesn't always show up at birth. Sometimes a person isn't found to have intersex anatomy until she or he reaches the age of puberty or finds himself an infertile adult or dies of old age and is autopsied. Some people live and die with intersex anatomy without anyone, including themselves, ever knowing. This is a painful reality, inborn condition, as using their words, an inborn condition of a person whose reproductive system isn't the way it should be. And that's intersex. And it is a painful condition. And it is a difficult condition, especially if you're aware of it. Think of in the in the public eye. And she's so fought to keep this private. Is she or isn't she? It's like, this is my battle to fight, and it doesn't need to be broadcast to everybody. And she's trying to work that out in the public arena. And it is painful, and it is difficult. And it is not something she chose. It is something, it was the way that she was born. And, and, and that reality means that, that as Christ followers, we move towards people who are struggling with intersex, as a condition that they were born with, with compassion and love, the same way we would move towards anyone who is in a place of suffering and difficulty. There is no reason to exclude someone who is intersex as other or different or having chosen this. But rather someone in that category of this world is groaning and in, in anticipation of the goodness of God to bring redemption and healing. And every single one of us long for redemption and healing in different areas of our lives. And it is no different for anyone who is struggling with intersex. And the problem with this is that people who are intersex have been thrust into this conversation on transgenderism. And the assumption is because you are intersex, because we can't easily determine whether you are male or female, you stand as evidence that gender is fluid. And these people are thrown into the conversation and it's so unkind because people who are born intersex don't automatically identify with the LGBT, LGBT transgender community. They don't, but, but so often it is said that they do. And so look at what they have to say from the society of North America again, the intersex society of North America. This is what they have to say on this. We're often asked why ISNA doesn't forcefully advocate for a genderless society. At ISNA, we've learned that many intersex people are perfectly comfortable adopting either a male or female gender identity and are not seeking a genderless society or to label themselves as a member of a third gender class. It's amazing. They're saying, no, actually, most people who are intersex want to identify either as male or female. And most of the time, it is possible to work out whether someone is genetically more male or more female, even though things aren't the way that they should be. And biologists say actually the number one way that they do this is through the reproductive cells that they produce, either eggs or sperm. And so often, intersex people, unless the damage is is incredibly severe, still reproduce eggs or sperm. And it's from that. And actually, that's why most biologists argue that. We, as a species, humans, created in the image of God, are male or female. We are binary in our gender, not necessarily because of our sexual organs, but because of the cells that we produce to reproduce. We only have eggs and sperm, which is actually what makes a species binary, male or female. And so these people desire not for a genderless society, but they would much rather be identified as male or female where possible. And so, again, out of compassion, I want to remove anyone who is or listening from this conversation, and they sit in the middle of that. You can just leave that slide up. I'm going to refer to it all the time. Um They they sit there in the middle with their intersex and they've got this puzzle box of Christianity saying, hey, here's a way of viewing your life and and what you're grappling with. And then you've got people on the other side going, hey, here's a way of viewing what you're grappling with and how to make sense of it in terms of this life. And it is up to an intersex person to decide which way they're going to go. And our hope is that they would encounter the person of Jesus and, and experience the identity that he brings But it is unkind. And and what we see is, again, this clash of ideas and people where the LGBT community has said, oh, this is amazing that there are intersex people because what we get to do is say, society is genderless. This serves our ideology. This serves our idea. And when we do that, it hurts people. And they themselves say, we don't necessarily agree with that worldview." So, if you're transgender, if you're intersex in this community, if you're listening, if you're, you're part of one of these communities, I would love to say to you, you are removed from this conversation. Don't worry. We're not going to throw you in with the worldview fights and the culture clash. What we want to do as a community, if you're struggling with, with um, being intersex, we want to invite you, if you are willing and want to, to share your story with us. And we would love to journey with you in compassion and love And to help you make sense of this in light of who you are in Christ. And we want this because the gospel is the only community. A gospel community is the only community where every single person is free to take off their mask and not pretend. And we would welcome you to to tell us the truth about your struggles. And we hope you'd be met with grace and love and compassion. Okay. Then moving on to people with gender dysphoria. So now gender dysphoria is... um, Where do we start? Okay, so basically, when a child is born, one of the very first things we say about a child is, it's a boy or it's a girl. I don't know what it's like in East London, but in Cape Town at the moment, gender reveal parties are are like the big thing. You know the balloon, you throw something at it, it pops, it's pink, it's blue, something like that. And, um, And people would rather us call these things sex parties, but I was like, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. That's open to far, far too much interpretation and misunderstanding. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, I just want to find something that I know I missed. And as we wade into this conversation, what I want to do is I just want to give us some helpful language around these things um, as we w- wade into gender. I mean, into transgenderism and gender dysphoria. And, um, so, so these, these phrases and these um, concepts are ones, how people have delineated or pulled or teased apart these things we might disagree with. But I want to give you the fullness of the language that people use in this conversation to kind of help us because um, we need to understand what people are saying and what they mean by what they say. So the first one is a cisgendered. A cisgendered person is a person whose identity and gender corresponds with their birth. So cis, uh, what I believe what I feel my gender is and what my gender is, they align. So that's the first one. The second phrase is gender expression, which is this idea of how you demonstrate or express your gender. So you can have I you can have a, be a biological woman, but feel that you are more male-like and you can express your gender in a masculine way. And then you've got biological sex and biological sex relates to, um, what you were born with, and, and in this conversation, especially the transgender community, would prefer us to say, birth assigned sex. No, that was just the sex that some random, doc, some doctor gave you at birth, birth assigned sex. And so those are kind of some of the phrases that I'm gonna be throwing out and speaking about as I speak about gender dysphoria. And so now back to, and that's why you get this idea of, hey, wouldn't it be better as a sex party because we're not actually talking about gender? no not a great idea okay so la and i struggled with um fertility for a long time and we went on a long journey of trying to fall pregnant many years and we had our kids way later than we we'd wish to have them and um part of that is, it's a journey with medical intervention and so we had this desire to just go you know what we don't want to know the gender of our child. We want something on this journey to be a surprise for us. And in the moment, um, on the operating table, Laura had a caesar. Um, Layla came out, was put on Laura's chest. She lifted up its leg, and she saw the umbilical cord and said, It's a boy! And the whole operating theater said, No, it's a girl! And I was standing there going, What is it? What is it? Which one? The anticipation's killing me. And it feels like our culture is kind of there at the moment. Which is it? Which one is it? And how do we make sense of these? Um, and through history, throughout history, this moment has been based on your biology. And it's been based on chromosomes. And it's been based on anatomy for, 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 for centuries. And it really is only in the last kind of 50 years, and I could probably argue 20 years, that we started to question the reality of male and female, but people who are struggling with um, gender dysphoria have this sense in which there is this internal grapple, where where the body they have doesn't feel connected to the reality of the gender that they feel themselves to be, and that that disconnect and that internal disconnect is incredibly painful. And they go, "Well, I know I was assigned the the sex male, but I, it doesn't. It, there's a rub, an internal rub. There's an." eternal turmoil. This doesn't seem to fit who I believe myself to be. And Dr. Mark Yarhouse is an incredibly helpful doctor in this. In fact, there's a slide at the beginning. Can you just throw it up of all the people that I have referenced in this talk? And this is a good point to just throw that up. If it's there, I'll give you time to find it. And Dr. Mark Yahaus is incredibly helpful. And he's probably the, the a unique guy because what he is doing is he is in a seminary. He's also a doctor. But he's also engaging the LGBT community, but he's also studied and and leaning into um, transgenderism and gender dysphoria. And he was the most gracious and nuanced person on this. So if you're struggling, I would encourage you to get his book. If this is a grapple you're having in your home, get his book. He is so helpful. And he speaks of this woman, an evangelical Christian. She believes in Jesus, who, who has gender dysphoria. And it has persisted for her whole life. And she, she describes, she, but she identifies, she is a woman, born a woman, and identifies as a woman. But she says this gender dysphoria is like a noise, a constant crackling in the back of her mind that will just not go away. So the internal turmoil is true. It is painful. And people often, again, think that people who are struggling with gender dysphoria are immediately um, aligned with the LGBT community. And again, you're seeing this idea of ideology taking hold of people in suffering and using them as a reason or or an example of why their ideology is true. But again, people who are struggling with gender dysphoria are trying to make sense of their gender dysphoria in light of multiple worldviews and don't automatically see themselves as transgender. That word now having to separate gender dysphoria out from transgender because that transgender word comes with a whole ideology and worldview that people don't necessarily identify with. So again, we have to acknowledge that people who are struggling with gender dysphoria don't automatically fall into a worldview. And how can they fall into a worldview? Because gender dysphoria is predominantly seen In boys between the ages of two and four they have no idea of worldview by that stage they're just trying to make sense of this this internal noise in their mind that says there's something wrong with my body and what's so interesting is it is in predominantly in boys between the age of two and four most of them desist which means it corrects by puberty and many, sorry, many of them by puberty, most of them post-puberty, and a, f- a very small percentage continue for the rest of their lives. The research shows that that uh, this, is, this is how professionals kind of define gender dysphoria. It is for children, a child who is consistent, persistent, and insistent in feeling like they have the wrong body to their felt gender. It's the disharmony that they feel within themselves. That's gender dysphoria. So studies show us that it's about 1 in 10,000 males and about 1 in 20,000 females. So it's much more prevalent in the male population. Other studies say about 3 in, in 1,000. So it's less than 1% of our entire population struggle with gender dysphoria, mainly boys between the ages of 2 to 4. And again, at the ideas level, 1% is a is a... Is a small number of people. At the people level, 1% is a lot of people struggling with an incredibly painful reality in their lives, a reality that is so painful and so difficult that many of them choose suicide as a way of dealing with it. So again, compassion and empathy for anyone in this place struggling with gender dysphoria. And then at the ideas level, just place it correctly. And that you'll see why it's so important that we pro place the size of this correctly. Um, What is the cause of gender dysphoria? And if I'm honest, we don't know. You don't know. I've read very broadly on this, and and we just don't know what the cause of gender dysphoria is. Some people say it's nature. It's just the way people are made, and they come up with this idea of the sex brain theory where, hey, if you do brain scans, you can see that someone has more of a female brain in a male body or more of a male brain in a female body because female and male brains are different. And they'll say, hey, you can see this. But again, doctors at John Hopkins and John Hopkins was um, was the ones who pioneered the, the surgery transition surgery, they say this, all interpretations, usually in popular outlets, claiming or suggesting that a statistically significant difference between the brains of people who are transgender and those who are not is the cause of being transgender or not are unwarranted. I went and looked at some of these research articles about the brain scans when I first prepped this talk, and I went to the ones that said, brain scans show us transgender people. So I went for the titles that were four. And then you go and read the conclusion, the one that was most. I went and read the conclusion. And in the conclusion, the researcher says, We are a long way off, if ever, being able to determine whether people are transgender by their brain scans. You see the disconnect between the title and the conclusion. One way off. Then other people say, "Hey, it's nurture. It's got to do with nurture. If we just raise boys as boys, they'd be boys." And um, there, there may be some truth in that, but but the reality is, it's not that simple. It's not that clear. One author says this: "We don't know what causes gender dysphoria. Given the breadth of the transgender experience, it seems like it seems likely that the contributing factors vary from person to person and may include elements of both nature and nurture." In all the uncertainty, however, one thing is clear. Those who experience gender dysphoria certainly do not simply choose to do so. And what I have found in all my reading and and listening and researching this topic, that the people who are emphatic, this is what it is. They're not coming from a loving of people place. They're coming from an ideological place. That they're trying to fit people struggling with gender dysphoria into their view of how the world should work. Not necessary how it is. And so we've got to be careful of doing that. As Christ followers, we've got to be careful we've got to understand. we've got to be okay with saying we don't know what causes this, but it's there. It's there. Um, and, and another thing is, as I read quite broadly, whether I was looking at Christian people speaking about this or, or activists or doctors or biologists, one thing is people who were about people showed deep compassion. So it didn't matter what their worldview was, but when people would say, hey, I love people, I'm trying to figure this out for the sake of the person in front of me, they were compassionate. And they they all agreed that compassion is needed because gender dysphoria and people experiencing feel real stress and anxiety and distress. There's something going on there that is causing real pain, internal pain in these people. And again, I think as a community, we want to be a community that can deal with ideas and call people to Jesus and to a true north. But we also want to be a community that is, is, is able to go, hey, whatever you're struggling with, whatever mask you feel like you have to wear, take it off and come to us. There is a person who can bring healing and restoration. And again, when it comes to gender dysphoria, it is in that category of this world is not the way it is. And all of creation is groaning in anticipation for the return of Jesus. And we long for his healing for all things in this world. Preston Sprinkle says this, if you have met one transgender person, you have met one transgender person. And what that means is you can't assume that this person is struggling with um, gender dysphoria for this and this reason. You actually have to go to that person and say, how did you get here? What's going on? And if you're willing, would you share your story with me? Because as these guys have said, the 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 transgender experience is so vast and broad, you can't assume everybody's starting at the same place and dealing with the same thing. So I hope that now brings some clarity to what gender dysphoria is. Small percentage of our world's population, mostly in boys between the ages of two to four, most of them desisting by puberty. Many of them desisting by puberty, most of them after, but some of it carrying on for the duration of their life. Then we have rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is the one at the bottom there. And this is where it starts to get a bit controversial. And if you're in schools, teenagers in schools or, um, or teachers or principals or in that space or on social media and you're seeing it, I'd say a lot of what we're about to talk about is what you're being exposed to in this moment when it comes to rapid onset gender dysphoria. So, there was this author called, I mean, doctor called Lisa Lippmann. She's a physician and uh, she was a professor at Brown University at the time that she found these findings. And she was seeing patients, and suddenly what she realized is that, hey, I'm, I'm experiencing a high volume of adolescent teens. Um, female teens coming forward and, and saying that they're transgender or they're, they're experiencing gender dysphoria. And she said it was unprecedented because she dealt with people with gender dysphoria, and it was usually boys between the ages of two and four. And suddenly she had all these adolescent teen, female teens, coming to her saying, I'm, I'm suffering from gender dysphoria. I'm transgender. And this surprised her. She said it would be like a radiologist who dealt mostly with breast cancer and 80% of their patients were women. And then suddenly, in a short space of time, 80% of their patients became men. She said, that's how stark it was. That's how surprising it was. And she said, well, we need to make sense of this. We need to understand where this is coming from and why this is happening. So she set out to do a study. And what she did is she she engaged 256 parents. And she sent them each a 90-page survey where she saw this happening. And she did this research into why is this happening and trying to figure it out. And if you look at that picture at the bottom there, what you'll see is I've got the pink arrows from that left-hand ideology of secular humanism, critical queer theory. You've got two pink arrows pushing into that block, and you've got two green arrows coming out. You've got nothing from the other side. Because this was her experience. What she said is it feels like there's some sort of social, she coined the phrase, social contagion. It feels like there's something going on that is different from gender dysphoria. There's something else going on here that seems to be rooted far more in an ideology and a way of thinking about the world that is causing these girls to suddenly engage the world differently. And it is severe and it is quick and it is vast numbers. There seems to be a singular influence causing these girls to respond. You can imagine that she... um, and what's so interesting is she's a, she's a doctor rooted in biology, and you'll see a few other biologists suddenly jump over from maybe they were secular humanists, not Christian. They probably were more, they are more secular humanists than Christian. But on this issue, when it comes to rapid onset gender dysphoria, they're jumping over to the other column and going, hey, w- we root things more in biology and there's something going on here that's not lining up. And we're finding ourselves as Christians, doctors, and biologists, especially in the the bigger debate on, on social media, coming together and going, hey, we see something here. We need to root this conversation in biology. We need to do research on these things. And so she said, this is not gender dysphoria. This is different from gender dysphoria. And you see there, between gender dysphoria and rapid onset gender dysphoria, I've got that dotted line. And the reason I've got a dotted line is because the one blends into the other. When do you know is it gender dysphoria or rapid onset gender dysphoria? And there's a bit of a blur. But at the extremes of those two things, it becomes very clear. And so that's why the conversation gets a bit murky. And why, how we move forward needs to be, we need to be very careful. She received massive criticism and backlash. And um, activists got involved. And her journal that she published, she published in a reputable journal, took down the article, took down her paper, even though it had been peer-reviewed. And then after a few days, they re well, after a time, they re-peer-reviewed it, and it went through extensively more rigor, because there'd been such backlash. And the journal then had to, re- the journal then republished it, saying, no, it's good data, it's good research. And the only thing she had to change was to make it clear in the title that she had interviewed the parents, not the kids. And that was the only criticism. And actually, as you have this conversation, you will see the scary thing if you're a parent is that activists are intentionally trying to drive, because trans activists are at the spearhead of this push, and they are actively trying to drive a wedge between parents and their children. And what they're trying to do in that moment is they're saying, hey, kids are the best at deciding what their gender is, and parents should actually largely not get involved. We had a school in Cape Town, survey, they give their kids a survey on what gender they want to be and intentionally said, we will never tell your parents what you choose. And that is where the culture is going, is that parents are not equipped to help their kids. Kids are more equipped to decide than their parents. I went to a talk in a school in Cape Town and uh, the person doing the talk was pro um, quick transition. And um, as he was talking, he he spoke to Lisa Lippmann's findings, and he said, "Ah, oh, she was just paid by right-wing Christians." And I was like, oh, "Oh, if that's true, that's terrible." So I went and researched. She paid for it out of her own pocket, and she makes it explicitly clear at the start of the article that it's paid for out of her own pocket. This is a doctor who's transitioned more than 125 kids in Cape Town schools, saying lie. In front of people so there's a lot of misinformation and that's the scary part of it is that we actually have to really dive into these things ourselves and you have to get to the 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 the, the research yourself to be able to actually make head or tails of it which is what is so hard because not everyone has the time for that and so who do you trust some have said oh girls are just same guy said no girls are just more willing to come out as transgender now because our society has changed and actually but people are saying, no, well, if our society's changed and it's easier, you would expect both boys and girls to be coming out more. But it's just adolescent teen girls. Multiple people have um, used, ended up using her research in books. And then at the end of it all, the ex-Harvard medical professor, the guy who headed up the whole medical um, department of Harvard, said her research is outstanding. My big question is, why does no one want to read it? Why does no one want to hear it? And then um, Abigail Schreier, she wrote Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze, Seducing Our Daughters. And she lent on um, Lisa Lipman's uh, research and, and wrote a book. 500 Amazon employees protested her putting that book on Amazon to the point where Amazon took it down few days later, it was put back up, and they realized they had no grounds to take down her book. It was based on research, and it was helpful. You think 500 people is a lot. Amazon hires 1.1 million people around the world. So actually, it was a minority that was very loud, shouting against something that they were scared, scared, challenged the way that they view the world. This book went on to be named Book of the Year by The Economist. And one of the best books of 2021 by the Times and Sunday Times. This is reputable research, and it is being shut down. And people are saying you can't say these things. I had a medical student in Cape Town tell me that um, one when they talk about trans- when they talk about gender dysphoria from a medical perspective, they they don't record that lecture. Every other lecture is recorded. They just don't because it's it's too dangerous to admit that gender dysphoria is a medical condition, and the parameters are usually boys two to four because it, can, it cannot then be used for the transgender agenda so they don't even record it because it's too inflammatory the same medical student told me that when they got to doing um, um, dermatology the lecturer was nervous and he got to a point where he had to issue a disclaimer he said okay we're dealing with acne now and at this stage of acne and the institution that we're a part of would not believe this or endorse what I'm about to say but we actually have to deal with women and men differently because of their hormones and he couldn't actually just medically say hey men and women are different he had to put a disclaimer out there and my point is this is that it is very dangerous when we believe that the loudest voice is the most honest voice it is very dangerous when we think that the loudest voice is the most um, is, is the voice that cares the most So often the loudest voices are angry voices, and they're actually speaking out of pain. And what we want to do is not negate their pain, but we want to make sure that what is being said is true. Deborah So in her book says that um, she actually, Deborah So, she wrote a book, she's a sexologist, and she said that she had to step out of academia to publish her book, because her academic career would come to an end when she published these results. And she's saying increasingly, doctors and researchers are too scared to research anything in the area of transgenderism or um, gender dysphoria, because if they find findings that go against the current worldview, they'll be canceled. And so what's happening is the, the research is being skewed towards an ideology. The very research we see here is being skewed towards the left-hand side, purely out of fear which makes it difficult for us to figure things out as parents and teachers and pastors who, who can't always do the depth of reading that is required. Okay, so Lisa, Lisa Littman's findings said this. 60% of the children she researched had, health, had mental health disor- disorders, anxiety, or autism. And actually, even the guy in the school admitted that I think it was 80% of his... Um, clients had autism that he transitioned. Susan Bradley, she's an international expert on gender dysphoria, says, if we don't understand that, if if we don't deal with the, the underlying comorbidities, the things behind the gender dysphoria, we can misdiagnose in very painful and damaging ways. And she has this to say, when I started identifying these traits in adolescents speaking of autism, who present with gender dysphoria, I really wanted to be clear whether they had a previous history of having what we call repetitive and obsessive interests in certain things. Because once one of these kids fixes on an idea, they can become really quite obsessed by it. And when you look at the stories of some of the people who have changed their minds later on, a lot of them are saying very strongly, I wish somebody had understood me from a psychological point of view and didn't just take at face value that I thought, what I thought was the answer to how I was feeling. Many of these kids that Lisa Lippman dealt with um, had a history of self-harm or trauma. Many suffered from borderline personality disorders. She shows that none of them met the diagnostical criteria of the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorder, none of them met the guidelines to be um, considered um, gender dysphoric. And what she did find was that transgenderism as an idea and ideology had become glamorized in their friendship circles, and high levels of support and acceptance were being found in identifying as transgender. The attention and the validation of coming out as transgender was a powerful pull in these friendship groups. There was great, greater levels of protection from teachers for, against bullying of transgender kids. This one was interesting. For about 40% of these girls, over 50% of their friendship groups came out as transgender at the same time. So 40% of the girls were in friendship groups where 50% of that friendship group came out as transgender at the exact same time. That's 70 times more people identifying as gender dysphoric than any other part of our population. Seventy times. That's that's huge. That is massive. And so her point was simply this. That this is not gender dysphoria. This is not gender dysphoria. This is something else. Something else is going on in our schools and in our culture at the moment and on social media. She also showed how there is a powerful social media presence that is making transgenderism as an idea, a way of coping with other stresses in your life. And that this is praised and and offered as a solution to what is going on in your life. So can we see how gender dysphoria is a real thing? We're not saying it's not. Gender dysphoria is a real condition that real people experience, and we need to meet them with compassion and love. But Rapid-onset gender dysphoria is a completely different thing and seems to have a completely different cause. And we actually have a pretty good idea of what's driving it from the research of Lisa Lippman. But you see how I put a dotted line there, and then I wrote fear of negative impact. uh, fear of negative impact is that there are some people who struggle with genuine gender dysphoria... who are so afraid that Lisa Lippman's findings are going to make people think that people don't struggle with gender dysphoria. It's all rapid onset. It's all social. It's all ideology. And this is where, as a church, we need to be nuanced and compassionate. And that's why, as a church, when someone comes to us and says, hey, I'm transgender or I'm struggling with gender dysphoria, we can't just have a blanket response to them. We need to say, hi, what's your name? What's your story? And how did you get here? you got to pass to people in love on an individual basis and go, hey, is there something of the rapid onset gender dysphoria going on here? Or, hey, when did this start? And if you have a, a guy going, hey, no, two to four, I struggle with these things. And it's been a noise in the back of my head for my whole life. Then we need to move towards that person with compassion and love and care. when well, we move towards everyone with compassion, love, and care. But can you see how this conversation... tricky. Now, how do we treat this? So let's throw that slide up quickly. Actually, you know what? This is a great place. Let's take a five-minute, five-minute stretch break. Let's stay in the venue unless you're like bursting for the toilet. I mean, let's... um, it's, but guys, let's honor the time. Five minutes. If you take more than five minutes, I'm going to take your lunch. Okay, great. Let's go. My biggest fear about um, having a five-minute break in the middle was that people would get raptured and leave. Um but it seems like most people are back. Okay, so that's encouraging. Okay, so we're going to carry on. Now, what I want to do is on the slide, you'll see again, down the middle there, it's intersex, gender dysphoria, rapid onset gender dysphoria. So I would say, and th- let's be clear, that rapid onset gender dysphoria is what our culture now calls transgenderism. So that, that is transgenderism as it stands. That, that gender is fluid, we're going to get into it, and you can choose your gender. I would say that that is rapid-onset gender dysphoria, transgenderism. Gender dysphoria is not transgenderism, actually. We have to separate out those terms now. It may once have been, but it no longer is. Gender dysphoria is a condition that people have. Rapid-onset gender dysphoria is an ideology that people believe and therefore do things, um, live out their lives in certain ways. And... And we're now gonna get into the treatment of gender, um, the treatments of someone suffering from gender dysphoria and largely the transgender community denies. They say, gender dysphoria is transgenderism, there's nothing else. So you also have to understand that So there's a debate, there's a fight going on saying, no, there are two things going on here. And then that plays into how do we treat these things? And when it comes to treatment, there is one approach that is predominantly being pushed on our culture at this point in time, by doctors and people in this space and culture at large. Not all doctors, but it is the predominant one. And, and here's the telling thing. Again, so I was at a school in, in Cape Town listening to a talk by a doctor who transitions people, and he admits I am also an activist. So he admits that he is not doing these things purely from a medical perspective. He is also doing this from an ideological perspective. And people have said, you're more activist than you are doctor. And that, that gets quite scary, doesn't it? Um, but he admits it, and he was almost a badge that he wore while, rather than a disclaimer that he gave. And he, his approach was this, gender-affirming approach. And so there, there are kind of three approaches. The first one is a gender-affirming one, wait and see, and the development model. We're going to look at each of these, but the first one is gender-affirmative. So gender-affirmative approach simply says this. When a child is consistent, persistent, or insistent, we should social transition them immediately. So we change their name, we change their pronouns, we change their clothing, we change the bathrooms they use, the locker rooms they use, and we use chest straps. We do whatever we can to make that person look like and feel like the gender that they believe themselves to be. The next step is to then put them onto puberty blockers as soon as possible so that you prevent puberty from taking place. The heart in this sometimes is that you want to decrease the anxiety because the anxiety of transitioning into the body you don't feel like you are Creates higher anxiety, so let's just put them onto puberty blockers and stop that transition from taking place. Then what you do is you go onto cross-sex hormones. So you're not just preventing puberty now; you're giving the hormones of the opposite sex. And then you, um, and then you go as, as around 18, but it's about 16 now in America. You have top surgery, vasectomy, so you have the breasts removed, and then um, it is followed by bottom surgery, and then the full process. That's gender-affirming approach. And this is happening at high speed, is increasingly happening. It is the way being pushed upon, well, pushed on, it's suggested and presented as the best way forward. And this way is is built on some beliefs, and these beliefs are we should affirm the false experience of of gender in a child. A happy daughter or a dead son is your option. People are much happier on the other side of transition. No one, appro- no other approach works or is ethical. Those are the four beliefs that drive this gender-affirming approach. And you will be confronted with this. This is happening. This is what, the, again, the, the speaker at the school suggested. It is also what uh, kids in our community who are struggling with this have been suggested by their doctors. This is what parents will be told. And it is coming. <laughs> it might not be here yet, but it is coming. It is fast approaching. And the problem is that what is so scary about this is that any dissenting voice, any voice that says, hey, maybe this isn't the best approach is being shut down. So there's a man called Marcus Evans. He worked for the Tubby Stock Clinic in the UK. It's part of the NHS. He was, which is a gender dysphoria clinic. That's what it's there for. And he saw this approach happening more and more. This is not a bigoted man. This is a man who literally works at the clinic dealing with gender dysphoria. And he had this to say, attempts to discuss the issue from different perspectives of being impeded by accusations of transphobia or prejudice. So even just this guy going, hey, maybe there's a different approach to dealing with gender dysphoria than the one that we're currently doing, he was shut down as transphobic. And again, you see the language of activism and war. You are against, you are against, you are the enemy, rather than, hey, maybe you have a point, let's consider it, let's think about these things. What I want to do is I just want to show, because of these dissenting voices, because of how hard it is to hear voices and find voices, I just want to show the opposite of these views, so that that drive this approach, this gender affirming approach. The first one is we should affirm the false experience of gender. So the belief is, hey, if the child says they're a woman, a girl, then they're a girl. It doesn't matter what their biology is. That drives this beliefs, uh, belief. And this is what. Um, and then the first one is that there is a high probability of children desisting. So this is what ignores. So, so this idea, of, hey, if a child says, if they're in a boy's body and they say, hey, I'm a girl, the belief is you just let that child be a girl. But the evidence is showing this, that across all 11 long-term studies ever done on gender dysphoric children, between 60 and 90% desist by puberty. Some experiencing persistent gender dysphoria for their lives. Deborah So goes on, just the fact that children change their minds, should be enough for us to say, let's just hold off on transitioning them. Maybe we just hold off on um, transitioning them. So Deborah says this, regardless of whether we look at older or newer studies, no matter how large or small the sample size, or where in the world and which research team conducted it, the data is irrefutable, but you wouldn't know it based on the number of expert sources claiming desistance has been disproven. Every few months, those of us defending the science must go through the process of explaining why it is legitimate for yet another time and another time and another time after that. The logical conclusion would then be that clin- the, a the clinician should advocate for a cautious approach when advising their young patients, um, patients or whether or not they should transition. Instead, this body of research has been cast aside as bad science, peddled by anti-transgender folks, and allegations stemming from undesirable apprehend- uh, uh, An allegation stemming from understandable apprehensions that desistance may be used to justify bias against transgender people. You see what she's saying there? She's saying, hey, the research actually shows one thing, that desistance does happen. But as soon as we point out that desistance happens, we're called transphobic, and the research is discredited as transphobic. And she's going, but that's ideology clashing with research. It's ideology saying you're not allowed to find that out. Whether it's true or not, you're not allowed to find those things out. And she's, she's compassionate. She says she understands how this research can be unsettling for people who built an identity on these things. And also how it can be unsettling for those who are um, experiencing genuine gender dysphoria. And that this could be used to go, hey, what you're experiencing isn't real. But it is. She goes on to say that this idea that consistent, persistent, and insistent is a very dangerous way of diagnosing something when it comes to children. How many children are consistent, persistent, and insistent in many things that we deny them? That there are ch- I mean, <laughs> my boy Nathan is the most persistent, consistent, and insistent things on things that will kill him, like all the time. The other day, he <laughs> gonna, I, it's on my notes. I'm going to go over He goes, he says this. He goes, he pulls out a T-shirt, and he goes, pants. It's two and a half. He goes, pants. And I'm like, no, boy, that's a T-shirt. He goes, pants. And he starts putting, trying to put on these T-shirt pants. And I'm like, those are. Th- that's a T-shirt. He goes, pants, pants. And he eventually puts both his legs through the neck, and he pulls it up, and he gets it on. And I'm like, no, boy, that's a skirt. That's not pants. <laughs> that's what that looks like. I'm like, oh, I'm the guy doing the talk on transgenderism. No matter how much he wanted them to be pants, it was a shirt, and it wouldn't work. Things like tattoos and piercings, being able to drive and vote and drink, we limit to adolescence. The law itself will not try adolescents in the same way for their actions and their behaviors, because we know that their brains are not formed enough to fully understand or comprehend the choices that they've made and the things that they want. But yet, even when it comes to sex, we have an age limit on when you can legitimately, before the law, give consent to having sex. But you can give consent to having your sex changed far younger. Kira Bell, who's age 23, says this. In, I mean, Kira Bell, in age 23, in 2020, she won a, um, The high court ruled that under 16s are likely to be able to give informed consent puberty blocking treatment she was severely damaged by her puberty blocking treatment and this is what she says i was prescribed puberty blockers after three one-hour appointments and experienced little resistance she's like how how could i have a child after three one-hour meetings be given puberty blockers and she sued and she won and the court agreed with her and then social transition might be the cause of persistence is what Deborah also found out is that, hey, if you take someone, you say, OK, you feel like a girl. I'm going to dress you like a girl. I'm going to give you a girl's name. You're a boy, but I'm going to give you a girl's name. I'm going to dress you like a girl. We're going to change your lockers. We're going to do. And you're going to go back into your social groups and that's who you're going to be. The study showed there was one done by the Clinical Child Psychology and Psychiatric, um, um, and Psychiatric Journal. They did a study. In 2011, they found that actually what was happening was these kids would go, I'm a girl, I'm a boy. They would be socially transitioned, and then they would want to change their minds, but they were too embarrassed. They were too scared. And so many of them, what they did is they just waited till they hit high school, and then they went to a different high school, different friends, different area, where they felt the freedom to then transition back to their gender. And then the the, the big question is, what if this is rapid onset gender dysphoria? What happens if someone is in that group down at the bottom and they're actually very happy in their biological sex, their biological body, but there is this pressure and this acceptance in coming out as transgender and it's misdiagnosed and they go through transformations that's severe. This is, again, what Deborah So says. But when the majority of experts are too afraid to publicly criticize gender-affirmative therapies, parents cannot trust that their children, child is being given proper diagnosis based on the research regarding desistance. If a child's gender dysphoria persists into puberty, social and medical transitions would be considered then. But now parents are rightly skeptical if an adolescent or young adult is given the go-ahead to transition because clinicians aren't able to have the necessary conversations with their patients anymore. The one about happy daughter or dead son is the next idea. And this one got under my skin as a parent. If I'm sitting across from a doctor and they say, your choices are your boy becomes a girl or they commit suicide. I mean, where, where does that leave a parent? How do you even make that decision? And I've learned that as a parent, I've learned in general, actually in general wisdom, that any decision made out of fear is usually a bad decision. And this sounds far more like the, 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 the activity of an activist than it does a clinician, if you would use fear like this. But again, it happened in the talk in the school in Cape Town. And it's a lie. It's a lie. That's the bottom line. At best, the research is unclear whether suicide rates go down or up in these moments. Again, the doctors from John Hopkins who pioneered um, the surgery actually stopped doing the surgeries because they said, you know what, it actually makes no difference. And they're incredibly invasive surgeries and actually it's not helping people the way we thought we would. So the very people who pioneered the surgeries to help people say, it's not helping, we're stopping doing it. This is what they say. The most thorough follow-up of sex reassigned people extending over 30 years and conducted in Sweden where the culture is strongly supportive of the transgender documented their lifelong mental unrest 10 to 15 years after surgical reassignment. The suicide rate of those who had undergone sex reassignment surgery rose to 20 times that of comparable peers. What they're saying is they, the studies just aren't long enough. So what happens is someone transitions and in five years they go, how are you feeling? They're like, great. But what happens is after 10, 15 years, when they've lived in the reality of the transition, they're going, ah, the noise is still in the back of my head. This hasn't actually solved the fundamental problem that is going on. And suicide rates, if anything, got up, not down. It's just about how long have you walked and tracked with these people. They also admit that the other comorbidities, other underlying things like depression and trauma and other things that have gone in their lives weren't taken into account in previous studies. So to say that the the reason for the suicide has just to do with the gender dysphoria is too simple. And so actually it's a lie to say that your child will commit suicide if you don't go through transition. And again, you have all these stories of transition regret. And so you also have this evidence that not only are people not happier, they want to go back. They want to return. And you've got Scott Nugent who, who... in an interview, he said this, there are five children's hospitals in the United States selling surgeries to kids at $70,000 a surgery that has 67% complication rate." He speaks of how it takes them 10 minutes to urinate and it is painful the entire time. He says, we are butchering a generation of children because we are not willing to talk about anything. And you see that? That's why I want to give boldness to us. This is a conversation we are allowed to have and should be having, and it should be okay to go, hey, is this the wisest and best way to do things? They go on to say that no other approach is, works or is ethical. I think I've done the work of showing you that the very approach that they're promoting might not work and might not be ethical. We got Buck Angel almost died due to his transition. He says this I transitioned 23 years ago. I'm a guinea pig. I've had a lot of things happen to me. One of the most dangerous things was atrophy, yet we don't even talk about it. They're very real, when you take a girl and you put them on puberty blockers and then you give them male hormones, what happens to their womb? It dies, it atrophies. And we're gonna talk about the reality that they will, say you can go on puberty blockers and return, you can't return to what you once had. And so often the atrophy causes infection and massive complications. Puberty specialists are also saying that puberty isn't just about hormones, it's also social. Is that you have a peer group of friends that you go through this transition together with. And when you delay someone going through that with their their, their, their peers, you actually create psychological problems on the other side. Puberty isn't just about genitals, it's about a whole social and, and, and um, communal event of growing into adulthood. And there are real consequences to preventing that. Dr. Ryan T. Anderson says this, we may be experimenting on our children, turning them into guinea pigs. More and more people are just calling it for what it is. We don't have enough evidence. We don't know if this is working. And we should stop with surgery because we're turning our children into guinea pigs. Another approach that people suggest, which is, I think far more life-giving is the watchful acceptance or wait and see. Where you go, hey, my two-year-old boy is saying that they feel like a girl. Let's see what happens. And Dr. Mark Yarhouse is amazing in this. He says the number one thing that alleviates the anxiety and fear of a child is not whether you social transition them, but whether you as a parent show them compassion and love. The number one thing is, can your child come to you with anything and experience compassion and love? Remember, he's a doctor. He says, no matter what your child comes with, compassion and love will win the day. And then you wait and you see, does this persist beyond puberty? And most of the time it doesn't. If that is gender dysphoria, sometimes it does. The third option is the therapeutic or development model, which is very similar similar to the wait and see. And this is what Deborah So says, the third approach called the therapeutic approach or the development model allows a child to explore their gender while being open to the possibility that they may grow comfortable in their birth sex. A clinician will seek to understand factors relevant to the child's development, including trauma or other psychopathology. And what else is going on in the child's life that may be leading them to feel this way? This final approach, which is backed by the scientific literature, the most appropriate course of therapy for these children has instead been denounced by experts and medical organizations and academics and researchers as transphobic. What she's arguing for is the reality of like, let's look at the whole person. (laughs) It's lovely what Luke said earlier. We are more than our sexuality. We are more than our gender. And that approach is saying, hey, let's have a holistic approach and look at the whole person and see what other factors might be causing this and what this may be a response to other than assuming that this is the cause and the thing that needs to be fixed. Dr. Mark Yael says, if there are people finding relief in other ways, real relief from whether it's gender dysphoria or rapid onset gender dysphoria, maybe the gender affirming approach isn't the only way. And maybe there are safer ways where we don't turn our kids into guinea pigs. And then we have to ask the question, why, why is it that there is this loud voice shouting down people and shutting down the conversation? And the reason that there is a loud voice shouting down the conversation is because this goes beyond gender dysphoria. This goes into ideology and worldview. There are people going, hey, if what you have found out in this research is true, you fundamentally undermine the way I view the world to be. And they're not pushing back on research, they're actually pushing back on something that challenges their very way of viewing the world. And you have gotta ask the question, well, which puzzle box are they using? And it is that puzzle box. And what we're gonna do now for a short while is we're gonna look at that puzzle box on the left. And we're gonna see where these ideas are going and the trajectory of these ideas and where they lead. And it's so important that we do this because I tell you this is the predominant worldview that we swim in, and it's going to come to your schools, like it's come to the schools here. And I'm not trying to be fearful; I just want you to be equipped to have the conversation and broaden the conversation. So on the left there, you see this. So this ideology, this this idea, this this where this where this conversation is God is to this gingerbread person. Can we throw that up? Okay. This. Trying to see which one I can see better. I need my glasses. Okay, so <clears throat> gingerbread person. This again. Guy comes into the school. Uh, comes into multiple schools in Cape Town. And says this is what a person. How a person is made up. And it's presented as facts. It's presented as scientific reality. It's presented as medical. But this isn't medical or fact. This is ideology. This is ideas. You see, and what, what people believe now is that gender identity, that top one, is you are in a spectrum between woman and man. And they will literally go and ask a person, a girl, a young girl, a young boy, where do you see yourself? What percentage are you woman? What percentage are you man? Or are you somewhere in the middle? I, mean, I, don't even know what percent, I don't even know how to deal with percentages, why I married a maths teacher, and we're asking children, what percentage man or woman are you, I don't know what percentage man I am. How do you even answer that question? And then you've got gender expression, which is how you express yourself. So, do you, do you want to express yourself more feminine? Um, do you want to express yourself more masculine? Separated out from gender identity. And then you've got biological sex, and it says, are you female, male, or intersex in the middle there? And again, you see the intersection of ideology and people, because we heard earlier on that people who are intersex wouldn't put themselves on a spectrum, but here they are on a spectrum. And this is presented as scientific, but they say, no, we actually identify as female or male. We're not on a spectrum. And then you've got sexual orientation, which is heterosexual, bisexual, or homosexual. Biologists are saying that we probably shouldn't separate out gender identity and gender expression biologically. What is the very first thing that happens to a boy in the womb? They develop testicles. It's one of the first organs that a boy develops in the womb is testicles. And at the point that the boy develops testicles, it starts to flush his entire body in the womb in testosterone. And that testosterone actually is the major factor in how you present your gender identity, whether your levels of testosterone. And biologists are going, no, your, your gender expression is actually predominantly, bar all the social construct stuff. A naked man and a naked woman, you can see what a man is and what a woman is. And that largely has to do with the biological release of testosterone from the earliest of ages in the womb. And so to separate that out isn't biological truth, it's ideology. To put intersex people on a spectrum between biology is not truth, it's ideology. And that these things are being found in the school. And, wh- and what that means is that you can, you can be gender identity, you can identify as a man, or your biological sex is female, but you can um, present as androgynous, or, and then you can also, your sexual orientation can be heterosexual. So because everything's separated out of the spectrum, you can literally define, and gender is fluid, and you can literally define, and it's not even set. One day you might wake up feeling more male than female, more female than male. And that's where our culture is going. That's where the transgender conversation is at. And as I said, this is an ideology. This is an idea. And this is birthed out of a the kind of queer theorists or LGBTQ agenda. And this is where our culture is going. Look at what Judith Lorber says. She's a radical feminist. She says, when we no longer ask boy or girl in order to start gendering an infant. When the information is as irrelevant as the color of a child's eyes, only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. And when that happens, there will no longer be any need for gender at all. John Stuart Mill's founding father of modern Western liberalism says this, over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. Jonathan Grant expresses this well in Divine Sex. Modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality, the only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside by society, our parents, the church, or whatever else. It is deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. The authentic self believes that a person, personal meaning must be found within ourselves or must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. And then finally, Diana Evers stuff says this, young transgender people are our best teachers in alerting us to the reality that gender exists prim- primarily between our ears, in our brains and minds, and not necessarily by what is between our legs. Our genitalia or our accompanying XX or XY chromosomes, as many mistakenly prone to believe. You're saying we're not rooting biology. We're not rooting gender and biology anymore. We're rooting it in what's between your ears, your brain. What do you feel to be? This is where our culture's at. This is where our culture's at. How did we get here? Let's throw that slide. So Western thinking has found itself in this interesting place. It's kind of in a two story house. So the top story, you have theology and morality, everything that is private and subjective and relativistic. And then in the bottom story of our thinking, we have science, public, objective, valid for everyone. So we kind of split things into the material and the subjective. And what you would think is, that like, hey, as a society, then then surely the, the, the uh, subjective would give way to the science. Subjective would give way to the material, but that's not where our cultures ended up. Because our culture is postmodern we've we've undermined the very belief in truth that nothing is true and actually the best place to find truth is within yourself. So what has actually happened is the opposite the top story, sorry, go back. The top story, theology, private, subjective, relativistic, that's what is ultimately true. And the bottom story, science, public, objective, valid for everyone, that's actually material that we can use how we want to use and bend it to what we believe to be true, which has led to personhood theory. And theory says the autonomous self is free to impose its own interpretation on the body. Top story: what I believe myself to be is what I am. Bottom story: the physical body, raw material with no intrinsic identity or purpose. This is just material. This is just plastic. It's actually what the Gnostics believe back in, in Greco times: is this idea that hey, the spiritual is what's ultimate, and the physical we just discard it. And this isn't actually new ideas. We're just circling back on old ideas. But this is where we find ourselves. And personhood theory is incredibly scary because what it is actually saying is that you can be a human but not a person. It's that you can be a human. That's just material. But you're not yet a person. And you can see how that would play into the abortion debate. You can see how that would play into the euthanasia debate. And you see how it plays into the transgender debate. Is if a person is a... When do we determine? How do we determine when a person stops just being plastic material and actually becomes a person and we separated those two things out which is incredibly scary to think that there's a world in which people me could at some point cease to be a person and then we do whatever we want with that and this idea has led to um, the transgender explosion and that's why we see people experimenting and you get transsexual, transvestite, female, queer, third-sex, two-spirit, drag queen, um, drag king, cross-dresser. And it's exploded way beyond gender dysphoria. And it has become something else entirely and completely. But this ideology, this way of thinking, it falls apart on itself. If you actually think about to its logical conclusion, it doesn't play out in the real world. It doesn't actually work in the real world. I mean, just take something like um, other identities. Can Ian Kruger stand up here on the stage and go, I identify as a black male. That is controversial. I've probably made a few hearts stop. In Cape Town when I said that, I made a few hearts stop. My heart stopped. I can't do that. Especially in a country that has experienced such pain based on racial lines. How dare a white male say that he is a black man. It just doesn't work. Yet this has happened. We had Rachel DeLenza in America. She, ser- she served as the president of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. She presented as black. And then one day it was found out that she was born to white parents and that she was actually white. And she'd just been presenting as black this entire time. And the culture rightfully said, that is, that is not okay. And she got fired from her job. This is what she said: Whiteness has always felt felt foreign to me. For as long as I can remember, I've always felt that I am black. It's the exact same logic as the transgender: as for as long as I have felt, I was female or male. It's the same logic that she's using, but our culture is going. But it doesn't work there. It doesn't work. You can't just present as black when you're white. She was actually fired from a job. And she was actually sentenced to perjury and felony for her lies and her deceit. Then you've got people who are saying, hey, I'm actually trans-able. And so people have these functioning limbs, and they go, but I identify as a person without an arm. And they've had their arms removed, wanted to have their arms removed or their legs removed. But this isn't far off from having your genitalia removed because you identify as a different gender. Jules shopping. With the help of her psychologist, blinded herself because she identifies as black, I mean, as blind. There's the picture. Beautifully seeing child, identified as being blind. Now, these are the extremes. This is not gender dysphoria. But this is the logical conclusion of a way of thinking. And remember, right at the start, I said, guys, ideas hurt people. And this is where you see ideas hurting people. And so we don't contend against ideas because we want to be right. We don't contend against ideas because we think we're clever and smart. No, that's not our heart. Our heart is we love people, and we don't want ideas to unnecessarily hurt people. And we believe that the ways of Jesus don't bring pain. They bring life. And in the ways of Jesus, you don't see people who are beautiful young girls able to see being blinded. But that is the logical conclusion of the ideology of where we're going. There, don't put up the next slide until I say so. Um, there are trans-species people now. We're seeing it increasingly on YouTube. You go on YouTube, there are people as cats. Cats. Pardon? Furries, apparently. There are teachers being told in America that their children are allowed to reply in meows if asked a question. And we laugh about it, but it's happening. But it's the logical, you can't push back against it, you can't argue because that's who they've always felt that they are. And we believe that sovereign autonomy and what I feel is sovereign and ultimately true. Richard Hernandez felt that he's always been a dragon and he had surgery done. This is a horrible picture, so if you don't want to look, don't look, but this is what he had done to himself. His tongue split, horns put in, scales drawn on his face, because he identifies as a dragon. For as long as he knew, he felt like a dragon. You can take it down. So the logical conclusion of this doesn't work. And then when you get to women's rights, this really clashes. Doesn't this clash in women's rights? How do you protect a woman if you can't define what a woman is? Mary Lou Singleton of the Women's Liberation says this, my entire life work is fighting for the class of people oppressed on the basis of their biological sex, including atrocities like forced child marriage, infanticide, and baby girls and female genital mutilation, which occurs across the world, but because of the gender identity movement ideology, it is now deemed transphobic to label these people women and girls. What we are seeing is the legal erasure of the material reality of sex. Protections based on sex are now being erased from the law. You can't protect women woman and the most vulnerable if you can't define what a woman is. And she's going, I spent my life giving myself to these things. And now my work's being undermined. You have Bruce Jenner, who became Caitlin. And the irony, and she came under so much fire because she presented as a stereotypical sex object of a woman, version of a woman. Not representing the trueness of what it means to be a woman. Rugby unions are trying to say, uh, we won't let women play against men. I watched a UFC fight. Real woman against a trans woman. I actually got sick. She was so beaten up. And you, she was so beaten up. And, she, and, and the commentators were going, <laughs> The one guy was just being honest. He's like, I, I don't know about this. I don't know. You could feel a whole hushness over the whole moment. And the, the one guy's going, no, this is liberation. This is freedom. This is, another guy's going, no, I don't know about this. And the woman was decimated and she came out the ring and her face was bloodied and bruised. It's like, that's just battery. That's abuse. That's woman abuse. And we're now putting it on a stage and calling it liberation and freedom. It doesn't work in the real world. These ideas don't work in the real world. And there's so much we could say about the Christian worldview. And we don't have time to do that. And we're going to do that on Sunday. And this is where we land. But what I want to point to us is that on, on Sunday, we're going to look at what, what Jesus offers. And the beautiful identity, the beautiful person that Jesus is. And the incredible reality of who he is. And what he's done for us. And that his heart and his desire for us is wholeness. And when we have this conversation in a way that people don't believe that Jesus has good intent for them, we're doing it wrong. But for anyone in this room who's struggling with intersex gender dysphoria, or even if you find yourself being compelled by this ideology of rapid onset gender d- dysphoria or transgenderism, I'm just simply going to say that Jesus is a better way. And I would encourage you to come and listen on Sundays in different churches where you can hear that. And here's where we land and go to lunch: is that we serve an embodied worship, uh, we serve an embodied Savior. The great scandal of Jesus coming was that He stepped into human body, flesh, in a Greco world which said the body doesn't matter; it's the spirit that matters. The Creator of the universe would dignify the human body and step into a human body as a baby, and He would be gendered; He would be male. The the incarnation of Jesus into human body was the great scandal of the Christian faith back then. He lived in bodily form. He bore our sins in his body, Colossians 2.9. And we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, Hebrews. Jesus stepped into human form as an embodied savior. He moved towards a cross and gave up his body as a great sacrifice to redeem and restore those who were far from him and bring about healing. And the most beautiful thing is three days later, he rose in a resurrection body. And that the great hope of everyone who is groaning in their bodies now, and all of us are groaning. I'm over 40 now. I'm groaning in my body in different ways, particularly my knees and lower back. But the great hope for anyone groaning in their body, anyone struggling with a disconnect, is that one day Jesus will return. We will be with him and he will give us new bodies. And we will have resurrection bodies like his. And that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus cares about the material. Jesus had design in the material. Jesus loves our bodies. He gave them to us as a gift. And where they are broken over our time, short time on this earth, He promises not to get rid of our bodies, but to give us eternal resurrection bodies full of his glory forever. Jesus cares about the material, and he loves us enough to give us bodies. I'm done. Oh no.
1: Thank you, Ian. I must confess, I do like just a moment listening to this, and it's, ah, uh, if you in, at every day you'll often hear me talk about a we live in a broken world with broken people. And i was sitting there listening to this, and some part of your talk, I just realized, I can use that phrase without my own heart breaking for people that are living in brokenness. I can use it as a pastor, but my own heart won't necessarily break for the very brokenness that we see. And um, God, uh, to Carl and to Luke and to Ian for serving us so well. I feel God freshly breaking my heart for our world, for our churches, and for our people that are broken and living in brokenness, and the grace of Christ that is sufficient for us to live in this world, that we have that confidence. Um, can I pray for us? I just feel like, Let's, maybe you like me, maybe you freshly in your heart, broken for people that are living and facing brokenness in their lives, and I would love us for us as churches to be broken by God's Spirit for the world we live in. Lord Jesus, thank you. Yeah, Lord, sometimes we don't have words. Um, Holy Spirit, thank you that you soften our hearts. Would you soften our hearts? We don't want to be a church full of information. We don't want to just use terminologies even a term like we live in a broken world without our hearts being broken, with the consequences and what that looks like and what that feels like. Give us a heart for our city, for our church, for our friends who don't have you, don't know you, don't know your grace, don't know your mercy. May we become a church and a people um, not weaponized by information, by, but but broken by your gospel and your love for us that we can't but love those and show compassion and gentleness and and grace to those who are confused and with no lights on in their world. Thank you for for Carl and for Luke and for for Ian and for how they've served us. Thank you for your scripture and your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you soften our hearts freshly again this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a massive um, thank you for being part of this. We're not done with our conference. But I just wanted to honor you guys. And thank you for the, the time you've taken your wives being with us. It's very special. We're looking forward to this afternoon. Tixi's is gonna let you know what happens from now onwards.